But then the game starts. I now pause it because I'm at the beach in Montauk, having a good time with the kids. I then start the game much later. And now I'm watching the game much later. And it's, you know, a lot of the frustrations I brought up. Can't trust Seth Lugo. (laughs) Can't trust Adam Adovino. You know, Lindor hits that awesome home run. That was majestic. How he's standing there in the batter's box, hoping it stays fair. It stays fair. He shows all the great emotion. And obviously, we know how the game ended. You're a Med fan. You know what happened. They got very, very lucky is basically what happened. Brian Anderson can't play third base. And then Tanner Scott can't throw to first base. And the Mets are gifted a victory. I mean, you talk about gifted a freaking victory. That game Saturday was a gifted victory. Not that I'm complaining. The 86 Mets had gifted victories, right? Like, it's baseball. But as that game ended, and I'm hearing Gary Cohen, Nitto will score. Oh, it killed me. I wasn't there. I mean, it was... I think I had more FOMO for this game than I did the combined no-hitter, which is another game I happened to miss. Just a scheduled missed game. It was a Friday night. I had gone, I think, the next day or the night before, whatever it was. This one, I think, bothered me more. So I enjoyed it. I was happy. I was relieved that the Mets won this game, but God, I I had major, major FOMO. I had major, major regrets. Evan, let me just... Okay, let me just rewind a second, okay? Yeah. First of all, you can't have regrets about the combined no-hitter because you can't predict that's going to happen. Right. This is a special day. (laughs) Keith Hernandez, everyone knew about, you knew about, and you chose to go Thursday and Sunday instead, and you only went to Montauk for a day? How did you not go to the game? How did you choose not to go Saturday? I I don't know. I don't get that. I misread how I would feel, I think is really what it came down to. I misread that, hey, you know, Keith's a great player. I love Keith, but... I never watched him. Like, I'm too young. I'm 38, 39 years old. I didn't watch Keith as a player. So I took it as, well. it's a great moment in Met history, there are other days that will matter more to me. And so I guess I took it for granted and figured it wasn't going to bother me. It wasn't going to be a big deal. And as I started watching it, I realized I was wrong. I realized I effed up. Does that not make sense? Uh, It it does. uh, Because I did something kind of similar, but not the same. With what? Uh, uh, what was it? The f- it must have been the fiftieth anniversary, or there was a there was an anniversary, I think, for the '86 team or something. And I well, I bo- can tell you this, Pete. It wasn't the fiftieth anniversary of the '86 team. No, no, but it was. It was some. I can't remember what it was exactly per se, but I was. I bought season tickets specifically, making sure I had a package that had a celebration in August. For right. I, maybe it was the 25th anniversary of the team I, or the 50th anniversary, of the, whatever. And then I went and booked a cruise. And I'm like, okay, great. I, it just so happened that the cruise was the same weekend or week of that anniversary. I was like, uh, I'm not going to make the Mets game. And that was, that was, I ended up skipping it. So I, I mean, I but you knew, you knew you wanted to go to that event. So. That's, that's why yeah. I bought the package, and I ended up not going. To, I ended up not going to the game, though. I ended up that's just cruise. messy. That's just messy scheduling on your part. That's basically. I, what I, that I've is. never been a good scheduler. No, not good with that. I think. I think with me, it was. I, I love the history of this franchise, and I made a mistake in terms of picking my spots. Like looking back on it, 
what I would have said to my wife, who's great. She's the most supportive person in the entire world was, you know what? I'm not going to go Thursday or I'm not going to go Sunday. This is the game in this series. I really want to go to, and this isn't a knock on Keith. I think it's more, I just misread that because he was before my time as a player, that the game wasn't going to really affect me. Uh, Jerry Kuzman's number was retired. Jerry was long before my time as a fan. I happen to go, but it wasn't like an event I needed to be at. And again, it's not a knock on the history. I love the history of this franchise, and I'm so glad that they're honoring the history of this franchise, and they're doing a great job of it. I I do want to clarify a couple of things. Number one, I don't like the Wilpons as much as the next person, but this can't be talked about as if look what Cohen is doing that the Wilpons wouldn't do because that's just playing fast and loose with the facts. The Wilpons were the ones that recently decided to expand the retired numbers list. Jerry Kuzman's retirement ceremony was supposed to happen during the pandemic year when the Wilpons owned the team. So This isn't true to say, well, Steve Cohen's now in touch with Mets history and he's retiring all these numbers. Now, Cohen does love Mets history, and I think he's doing a great job bringing back Old Timers Day. Absolutely a Steve Cohen thing. But the retired numbers stuff actually started with the Wilpons. Howie Rose, I remember coming on with Joe and I a couple years ago saying, yeah, there's this Met alumni panel or whatever it is, and we're going to expand the list of retired numbers. So, I can't stand the Wilpons as much as anybody. I just want to be fair about this. It's just, it's misrepresenting history to say that the decision to retire Keith Hernandez's number and the decision to retire Jerry Kuzman's number really came strictly from Steve Cohen. That's not the case. It started with the Wilpons. Why did did it take so long though? That's my question. Why did, because the Wilpons had the team for a long time. It's not like they had the Wilpons. Wilpons. The Wilpons had one decision that I actually agreed with, all right? And I don't want to make this about this because I've made my opinion clear about it. I love the fact that they had a really high standard for retired numbers. I did. I really loved it. I mean, think about who had retired numbers. Think about it. Casey Stangle was more ceremonial thing for what he did as a legendary New York figure. Gil led this team to a World Series in 1969 and passed tragically. And Tom Seaver's the effing franchise. And the other guy was Mike Piazza, who is a Hall of Famer and represents the New York Mets. And that was the list. And I had no problem with that. So, yeah, now they've changed it. And I totally understand that you, Pete, and many other Mets fans are saying, this is great. Let's do Doc and Daryl now. That's fine. I respect that view. I actually loved that the Mets had a very high standard. And I never took it as a knock on the history of the team. I took it as, wow, the New York Mets have a high standard for retired numbers. With that said, I lost the argument. It's over. Now that the box has been opened and Jerry Kuzman's number is retired and Keith's number is retired, I'm not bitching about it. I don't think it's a bad thing. I just happen to like the fact that they used to have very high standards for retired numbers. Is that a problem? Does that make me a bad guy? No, it doesn't make you a bad guy, but the problem I, the, the problem I do have is this. The history, you can't really... You could say, oh, look at the World Series at the Mets won in 86. Besides that, the history of the Mets is very vague. There's not much to it. I can't sit there and be like, oh, and then they had... like, And I hate to go back to the Yankees, but Mickey Mantle, DiMaggio. I understand all those names are, you know, they had a longer tenure to them. They've been to over 100 years. But on the other hand, the Mets have been around for a while. They've The history is... 
Oh, remember when they traded away Nolan Ryan? Remember those bad moves that the Mets have made? That's the negative uh, component to this whole thing. It's got to turn to a positive because David Wright was a part of this history. Uh, the Again, 86, they actually won a World Series, and it took till now to retire a number. I mean, that's pretty dumb. And not only that, the 17 was handed out a million times. I mean, think about all the yeah. different people that wore 17 in the time that Keith Hernandez left the New York Mets. Look, I, I think it's fine. All right. I, I've already offered my opinion on retired numbers, but it's an argument I lost. It's like the DH. You know, you just have to accept it. And I accept it. And David Wright will have his number retired as it should. And we move on. But it was just, it was a great night off of TV. And I had major, major FOMO not being able to experience it. Now, I did notice this. And I know it was on Twitter Saturday night that this was the first time, that Saturday night game, it was the first time the Mets had won a game in extra innings with two outs on a walk-off error. The first time they had done that since game six, 86 against the Red Sox. Now, personally, I think that's very, very specific. <laughs> I think it's almost one layer too specific for it to be that amazing. I think if it was walk-off victory in extra innings off of, a, off an error, I'd say great. Once you get to two outs, it's like, and the weather has to be uh, partly sunny and it needs to be after 7.30 at night. But whatever, I, I get it. That is kind of crazy. But what was really crazy was Gary Cohen's call. Because, and we're going to play it for you right now. We are going to play for you Vin Scully's call very quickly. Just a quick snap of Knight will score, the Mets win. And Gary Cohen's call, Nitto will score, the Mets win. It's like a freaking carbon copy. Take a listen. It's the same. It's the freaking same. Now, here's the question. Did Gary Cohen know that at the time? I, I can't believe that he would. Now, he knows Vin's call. We all know Vin Scully's call. I'm a, I actually prefer Bob Murphy's call, but whatever. We all know Vin Scully's call, but there's no way in the moment as Tanner Scott is making a terrible throw to first base that Gary Cohen is putting two and two together. And remembering and paying homage to Game 6, 86. So, I can't believe Gary did it on purpose, but it's freaking wild. Like, it sounds the same. It's it's described exactly the same. Ray Knight will score, Tomas Nittle will score, and the Mets win it. And it was awesome. Like, I admit, it was a, it was a great victory. It was a lucky victory. <laughs> I think we all have to own that. I mean, how about the fact that on the play before that, Two outs, runner on second, back-to-back -back strikeouts by Tanner Scott. Mets are about to lose just a brutal, brutal game. Disappointing day on this wonderful night where we're honoring Keith Hernandez. And luckily, Brian Anderson forgot how to play third base because Tomas Nitto on the first pitch, it's a ground ball to third base. They called it a double, but give me a freaking break. It's an error. And we are given a gift from the gods because Met fans, if Brian Anderson makes that play, and throws to first base, and the Mets lose. I don't think anything changes on Sunday. I don't think all of a sudden the Mets play differently. You're looking at a loss of three out of four to the Miami Marlins. And after winning the first game and facing a three-game losing streak going into the Atlanta series, I mean, there's going to be some negativity going into this series. Anyway, it'd be a lot worse. So thank you, Brian Anderson. Thank you, Tanner Scott. 
thank you for handing the New York Mets a victory. Because that would have been a brutal loss between Adovino giving up the home run and Seth Lugo giving it up. It, it, that game, in a lot of ways, really featured all of the things that scare the crap out of us. All of it just kind of mixed into one. Though Lindor had a big moment. That was kind of cool. I enjoyed that Lindor moment. But a bullpen that you can't trust. I mean, there's nobody in this bullpen outside of Edwin Diaz you could trust. And that gets us to the finale of this series. A game in which you have Sandy Alcantara, who is right now far and away the best pitcher in the National League. The guy's been utterly brilliant. And Taiwan Walker. Now, before we get to this game, a couple of thoughts on Taiwan Walker, who pitched marvelous. I mean, he was great. Seven scoreless innings, allows three hits, only walks a guy. Taiwan Walker did not make the All-Star team. Did he deserve to make the All-Star team? Sure he did. No doubt about it. I, I never lose sleep over this kind of stuff because at the end of the day, I don't think it matters that much to me if Taiwan Walker makes his second straight All-Star game, especially because you remember last year? Remember last year? Taiwan Walker made the All-Star game. He was great. He was fantastic. He had an amazing first half. You remember what happened next? <laughs> I'll tell you what happened next. He put together one of the worst second halves I think we've ever seen. In fact, I've pulled the numbers. Would you like to hear it in case you forgot? No. <laughs> no. So last year in the first half, Taiwan Walker, and this was good enough to be an all-star, congratulations, went 7-3 and three with a 2.66 ERA. Not bad, right? Seven and three, two point six six. Seven and three, two point six six. Let me see what his numbers are right now. You know, just in case you forgot. Like, what kind of year is he having this year going into the All Star break? So he has a two point six three ERA. So he has really matched what he did last year. Think about that: two six six last year in the first half, two six three this year in the first half. He's he's done exactly what he did a year ago. The second half of last year, he went, and we all knew he was bad. Trust me, you're listening right now. You knew he's bad in the second half. You're a Met fan. When I saw the numbers, when I looked them up a few days ago, they're worse than I even remember. Want to guess what his ERA was in the second half of last year, Pete? Uh, seven. That's a good, that's a good guess. 7.13. He was 0-8. With a 7.13 ERA. Can I come to his defense for a second? Of course. Go ahead. I love Ty. Love big Ty. So listen, here's the deal. It started off poorly. It started off with that Pittsburgh series where he thought that he, in the, I think it was a first inning, we tried to like scoop the ball. Yes. Rather than, rather yes. than trying to let the yes. ball run fair, try to scoop it foul, and it went fair. It was a bad play, and the whole inning blew up. And the second half, was that in a nutshell? That's how it just went that sour for him. That's why his downfall for second half, plus the fact that he's never pitched that deep in a season. In fairness, they won that game. That that game you're talking about, where he got knocked out in the first inning and that scoop yeah. kind of went back. Haywire. The Mets actually came back stunningly enough and won that freaking game seven six. It was one of their best wins of the year, and it was that. one of those wins <laughs> where I thought, see, we're going to be fine. Like, I got nothing to worry about because the game where I really, at the time, thought was going to be their downfall, and it turned out to be, was the last game before the All-Star break against the Pittsburgh Pirates where Edwin Diaz blew that save. I think they asked for a five-out save from him, a six-out save, whatever it was, and he blew it in the ninth inning. 
and they lost that finale uh, at the end of the first half of the season. And that really did turn out, if you want to find a game and say, where did the season go to, to the shits, basically? It was that game. But that second game you mentioned, the first start in the second half, which is fair to say, I mean, he gave up five runs, six runs, and a third of an inning. They came back and won that game, which was unbelievable. But yeah, no, after really that game was the downfall for him. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that that's what's going to happen. Like, I'm not saying that Taiwan Walker is going to implode in the second half of the season. I'm just reminding you that he had a terrible second half last year and his first half this year has essentially mirrored his first half last year. We don't need those reminders, dude. Like, we, Listen, I, don't, I'm, I know about it. <laughs> I'm not doing it to jinx him or anything like that. It's, and by the way, I'll offer this excuse for why I think it happened. Because if you're wondering, like, well, what, what's the difference? I think last year, a lot of guys battled with the fact that they weren't used to throwing nearly as many innings as they had thrown. And Taiwan Walker is the most extreme example of this. And what I mean by that is in 2020, Taiwan Walker threw 53 innings. Okay, kind of normal. No one really threw a lot of innings in 2020 because of the COVID season. The year before that, you know how many innings Taiwan Walker threw in 2019? Uh, I think it was, there's one of the years he did like about 80, but I don't know if that's the year. Well, no, this was the year where he threw one inning. Okay, he didn't even pitch essentially in 2019 and the same goes in 2018. He didn't pitch. So you're talking about a guy who in 2021 was coming off. I guess if you want to include the minor leagues and rehab starts, the number's a little bit higher. But the three previous seasons, he barely pitched. So I don't think it was a stunner that Taiwan Walker, who's now asked to quadruple that number, but more than that, over the course of a full season, would just completely run out of gas. And maybe that's an excuse for him. Okay, maybe it is. But I think it's understandable when you look at how little he pitched in 2020, how little he pitched in 2019, and how little he pitched in 2018. So I do not think Taiwan Walker is going to fall off a cliff in the second half of this season. Now, do I expect him to match what he's done in the first half of the year where he's pitched to a 2.63 ERA? I don't think so. But if he could pitch to a mid-3 ERA, I think we'd all sign for it. I think we'd be all right with that. And he's got one more start in the first half of this season. It'll be in Chicago against the Cubs. But he was great in this Sunday game. And really where I thought he was his best is when he got out of trouble, specifically in the fourth inning and in the seventh inning of this game. In the fourth inning, he lets the leadoff man, gives up a base hit to John Birdie, and then gets a huge, huge double play against Garrett Cooper. And that was a great play by Francisco Lindor, whose glove was really good in the Sunday game. There have been times in which Lindor's glove has been spotty overall, watching him every day. I thought his glove in the Sunday game against Miami was outstanding. And then in the seventh inning, and I wonder, I'm wondering aloud, if Buck Showalter thought about what happened in the Houston game. If you remember in the game against the Astros, Taiwan Walker was pulled in the eighth inning for Edwin Diaz, and he was pissed. He was not happy. He was not happy with the great Buck Showalter. He did not want to be taken out of that game. Diaz ended up doing the job. Drew Smith didn't. Mets lost to Houston. In this game, and I was at the game because I go to a Sunday afternoon game when they're not retiring Keith Hernandez's number, I say to my dad, I even said to my son, who didn't fully understand what I was saying because he's still five and learning the game. Taiwan Walker gives up a leadoff hit to John Birdie. He issues a walk to Garrett Cooper, and he's behind Jesus Aguilar 
First and second, nobody out, 0-0, counts 2-0. Hoff, nobody up in the bullpen. Nobody. Couldn't find anybody in that bullpen. And I wonder if that was Buck saying, all right, okay. You had an issue with me last week? You don't think I trusted you last week? Now I'm going to really trust you. Get through this freaking inning. Be a man. Get through this inning. And look, Ty answered. And Ty was pumped up. Because behind 2-0, he got Aguilar to fly out, got Sanchez to pop up, and then he struck out Brian Anderson. That was brilliant. It was brilliant work by Taiwan Walker. And maybe I'm creating a fake situation where Buck Showalter said, okay, you yelled at me, now go do the job. I don't know if it actually worked out that way. But either way, he did a great job. Or maybe Buck realized this. If I'm not going to Edwin Diaz, I don't trust anybody in this bullpen. And maybe that's why he let Taiwan Walker finish the seventh inning. Because, dude, you can't trust anybody in this bullpen. Nobody. It's, it's embarrassing. There's no one they can go to. It doesn't make a difference. I mean, they could th- freaking throw out the Grom for an inning just to warm up, and it's still you can't trust it. I, I, well, I mean, I'm a bit, it's, it's extreme, but the reality is it's and, – and Edward Diaz, by the way, did you see the number? See, you, were, you weren't watching the game. You were, listening, you were there. But I think um, – how many batters has he faced going into this inning? It was like 138 batters, right? Right. Something, something. He struck out half the people he's seen. Yeah. It's freaking outrageous. Oh, no, no. Edwin Diaz has had an utterly brilliant year. Despite some hiccups and some moments that cause us stress, I don't think it's even close. I always like to say we have a, a, a circle of trust in a bullpen every year. How do you rank it? And if I asked you right now, it's clearly Edwin Diaz number one by as many games as the Yankees lead the American League East, essentially, or as many games as I lead our fantasy baseball league, which is by a lot. That's how much I trust Shut Edwin up. Diaz. Nobody cares about your fantasy team. Except That's why me. I use the Yankees as an example, you know? <laughs> Edwin Diaz is a guy that, as crazy as it may seem, as crazy as it may have seemed a year ago or six months ago, I trust him more than anybody. I mean, look what he did in this game. He comes in in the ninth inning, and he threw, he threw freaking nine pitches. He threw, was it less than that, actually? He struck out two guys in the ninth inning. And I think he threw seven pitches. I got to look that up. And I'll tell you why that's important in a second. How many pitches Edwin Diaz threw. But Drew Smith comes in and look, Drew Smith pitched a one, two, three inning. So I don't want to crap on him today. It's about time Drew Smith pitched a scoreless inning. But he did give us all a, a little scare. It was Brian De La Cruz who hit the ball to the warning track, not Jesus Sanchez. I may have said that earlier. But... He got through it, and that's great. And he did it against the bottom of the order against the Marlins. So let's not exactly, you know, throw a parade for the guy. But Drew Smith was at least able to give you a scoreless inning. And when they couldn't score in the ninth inning, when again, the Marlins defense is begging you. They're begging you. I think it was Joey Wendell makes, I don't even know what the hell he did. It was a ground ball to shortstop. He's bobbling it. He's booting it. He don't know what the hell to do with it. They're giving you a base runner. One on, one out. Problem is, here comes Eduardo Escobar, who's back to sucking. (laughs) What's he going to do? He's done nothing since that Texas series. That one really pissed me. That's the moment where I knew they were going to lose this game. Despite being at home, despite their success in extra innings, when the Marlins are again giving you a base runner, and you're not facing Sandy Alcantara anymore, you got him out of the game. In fact, for some reason, Don Mattingly did the Mets a favor and took him out after only 93 pitches. Sandy could have gotten 10 in this game if they wanted to. 